This evening, for a, <clears throat> for a change, I'd like to talk about the practice. And uh, some of the dimensions of this practice that we're doing here together. I'd like to refer back to the first night of this retreat. When I spoke about the directions of this meditation, you've probably forgotten. (laughs) I see this practice as having three major directions. One of them is healing, one of them is inner empowerment, and one of them is the discovery of our own freedom. And as I understand it, this practice is concerned with the end of suffering and conflict, understanding the causes of conflict to bring about that end, not just in our personal world, but in the context of a much wider vision, the vision of all suffering, all pain, the potential for all freedom. It's a development that comes through really nurturing and cultivating and caring for our own understanding, our own sensitivity, our own spaciousness, and essentially by cultivating an understanding of what it really means to be awake, what it means to be conscious, what it means to have an acute sense of attunement with this moment. In the process of developing that understanding, there are a number of the changes that take place. There are changes that take place in the way that we see, the way of seeing ourselves, the way that we see the world around us. There's also changes that take place in our relationship to what we actually see and the actual content of what we see. There are changes too. Through the practice, through its development, we do have access to a variety of different experiences and a variety of altered states of consciousness. And that is part of this practice. There are also qualitative changes that take place within the very makeup of our being qualitative changes that take place on a very fundamental level in our vision of who we are, our sense of ourselves, our vision of ourselves as a human being. Now through the practice, different experiences will come to us through its deepening and through its development. If you sustain attention, energy, effort, continuity, moment-to-moment attention, if you sustain all of those factors, I can say surely that you will have access to a variety of different meditation experiences. Now, one thing that's important to understand in relationship to any experience, no matter how profound or how enlightening or how high it may be, is that any experience does have a beginning and it does have an ending. They are always transient. As soon as you withdraw the factors of energy, sustained attention, effort, then it's very likely that those particular experiences you may have access to will also pass. 
That's not in any way to dismiss or invalidate experiences because I personally believe that everyone deserves one or two at least. Hmm? When you put all this time in and all this energy and at times work, and I truly do hope that everyone will have at least a few moments of real peace and serenity and clarity and have an experiential understanding of what they're all about. Those moments, actually those moments, play a pretty important part in our practice. Those moments are a very deep source of inspiration. You know, you can go through days of sloth and slog and work and chaos, and you get one moment of real pristine clarity and profound peace, and it's wow, it was all really worthwhile, you know, and that's really what it's all about. And there's an intuitive, I think, respect and acknowledgement of those moments. And they're inspiring because they do show us that, you know, you hear these words, you know, peace, clarity, sensitivity, all this business, you hear about it. But to experience that within yourself, I feel does give a real inner trust that it is possible for us to see in that way. They don't just happen to special people, to hermits in a cave, to monks in a monastery, that they are accessible to us as individuals and they are within the range of our own resources and our own accessibility. They're very, very important. And those experiences, those moments, no matter how brief they are, bring a lot of energy, which you've probably noticed, you know, you can be kind of half-hearted in the practice, you know, and you get a moment of true peace, true serenity, and it's like a revelation, you know, and suddenly it's super yogi time, you know, and every step is slow and mindful, and every sitting is still. They give us a lot of energy, and they give us a lot of motivation, and we need those things. You know, who wants to sit in order to stay the same? Hmm? Don't come in here to put in this time in order to leave the retreat exactly the same as we came in. We have some, probably all of us, a few minor expectations change, you know. (laughs) And they're very valid. They're very valid to have, you know, if you just want to stay the same. You know, why bother to come here unless you have you know, kind of affinity with masochism or <laughs> something in that light. Okay. They also remind us, like those moments of peace, those moments of insight, those moments of sensitivity, I think also do serve to remind us of resources that we have within ourselves that may have been dormant or unexplored, or they may be resources within ourselves that we've just kind of forgotten about just become in some way disconnected from. And they remind us, yes, there is that way of being, there is that way of seeing, there is that possibility within myself. And when we look at the contrast between those moments of peace or serenity or insight and those moments that we may find ourselves in when we're inattentive or habitual or mechanical or fragmented, we can't help but look at that contrast. 
And I hope that we can look at it in a way that doesn't inspire us to pursue goals, to become very striving. But I hope that we can look at that contrast in a way in which we can really question what is of value to us in our lives, what is empowering to us, what is significant for us. How is it that we want to live and want to see ourselves? And they remind us of what is of true value. They remind us of the deep significance of inner serenity, the deep significance of peace and of understanding of inner connection. And that reminder, you know, comes through our own experience. Just as our trust in ourself also comes through our own experiences. Apart from the experiences which are transient, which don't stay the same, which can't be maintained and usually can't be repeated in exactly the same way. There are also changes that come about in the very quality of our consciousness. Changes that come about, about in our way of seeing, in the very makeup of our being. Changes which are much more cosmetic, <coughs> but which are fundamental inner transformations which you don't lose which you don't forget about, but which are integrated into your very being. And these are the changes of the understandings that I feel are of primary importance in this practice. Those inner transformations, really understanding on an experiential level, a way of seeing, a way of being in which there's a vast sense of freedom, in which there's a vast sense of expansiveness and openness and connectedness. Now those changes are not a product of technique. Experiences are very frequently a product of technique. But those deeper, more fundamental changes are not dependent upon techniques or methods. They are born of insight. They are born of wisdom, of, un of understanding, and they are not transient. They are not things that pass when we reduce the amount of time we put in on a zafu or when we, when we speed up our pace of movement. <clears throat> it's not, though, to say that we could entirely or would even want to entirely separate those changes from what we do here, from the practices, the discipline, the attention. We wouldn't entirely separate those changes from that. Because basically, with the practice, with the techniques that we use here, we are essentially cultivating an environment which is receptive to insight. That's basically what we do. We're cultivating an inner environment which facilitates the unfoldment of insight. Now, I'd like to look a little bit at the way in which this whole practice or this whole development of understanding and inner change does, does proceed. I don't want to say progress, but the way in which this development of understanding unfolds for us. I feel it's important for us to have a wider sense of what this practice is all about so that we don't get caught up in details. And it's very easy to get caught up in details as a meditator you know, of 
which tradition you belong to, which technique you practice, which technique is better than another technique. It's very easy to get caught up in all those details and really lose touch a little bit with what the wider vision of this practice is all about. Now, I have, of course, one major hesitation or apprehension that always arises when I think of giving a talk about the possibilities of this practice or the dimensions of this practice. And that hesitation comes up because we so often and easily and frequently find ourselves in the role of comparing and judging and evaluating where we are, where we're not, what we've had, what we haven't had. You know, and I talk about different experiences, and you think, we have had that one, I must be doing okay, I haven't had that one, I must be doing so badly. And there is, it's important to acknowledge, there is something within us that would really be reassured by some kind of progress report. You know, and it would be nice to be able to have a progress report. You know, almost as if we were in school, I feel at times, you know, some people would like us to kind of hand out report cards, you know, C plus in walking meditation, you know, and <laughs> B minus in sitting, you know, and D in eating meditation, you know. At least you know where you stand, you know, and where you've got to go and what you need to let go of. Well, actually, we don't do that. And, and I haven't noticed any inclination to begin doing that. So, when in listening to this talk, I would ask of you as much as possible to just set aside for at least the next 45 minutes the comparing and judging and critical mind. And if you see it arising, then give it 10 minutes at the end of the talk to have really a good time. You know, evaluating where you are and where you're not, and then let it go because it's not important. One thing that we need to trust is that where we are is where we need to be. That's where our learning is. No one put us there. No one imposed it upon us. Where we are is where we need to be because there is something there for us to learn and to understand. It's very important to appreciate that because one of the basic facts I feel in meditation practice is that there is no standard formula. There is no standard map. There is no standard guideline. We are all unique. We bring our uniqueness into this practice and this practice is in many ways just a mirror that takes on the flavor of what we bring to it. Which is why, of course, people experience retreats so differently, because this practice is a mirror which takes on the flavor of what we bring to it. And if we're going to learn, then we need to acknowledge that that reflection is actually very clear. And all that we need to learn is, is very accessible to us. We just need to see rather than to try and make it different, modify it, manipulate it, etc. It's very important to have no models of what should be happening for you, what you should be experiencing, what you should have left behind by now, but simply to open to what is. Part of our uniqueness is something that I would call almost a karmic makeup. There is 
within us differences. That means that one person will come into a retreat for the first time and they'll sit down and they'll be perfectly at home. You know, and they may have deep levels of concentration experiences and absorption experiences. It means that another person will come in, they've done lots of practice, they put out exactly the same energy, the same attention. They may never have one of those concentration experiences. It doesn't mean that one is a better or a worse meditator than the other. It doesn't mean that one is working better or working less well than the other. It simply means that our different inner inclinations give us access to different forms of experiences, and that's all right. And to really bear in mind that the experiences are really not so important, really not so important, that what is important is the quality of our own consciousness and the development of our own wisdom. You know, having the highest, most elevated, most deep states of concentration or different experiences doesn't mean that you're going to be able to live this, leave this retreat and be a well-integrated, sane, compassionate, loving human being. And, you know, I mean, a clear example of this is, you know, last summer uh, I was teaching and uh, there was a, a, a very small group of scientists who came on the retreat, and their major work was vivisection, uh, you know, experimenting on animals. And um, they'd been sent to the retreat by their company, it was suggested, so that they could cultivate more detachment <laughs> in doing their experiments. You know, so really to acknowledge, you know, and some of these people had really, you know, I mean, they're pretty good yogis by all, you know, usual standards and models. You know, they're great yogis. You know, they sat and walked and sat and walked and, you know, paid attention to their breath. But to really acknowledge that inner experience, that, you know, experiences of meditation does not necessarily bear any relationship on how you live. It is your wisdom and your understanding that allows you to live as a wise and compassionate human being. Okay, so I like, hope I've put the whole area of experience <laughs> in perspective before I talk about it. <laughs> Something else I feel that we need to acknowledge, acknowledge in the development of this path and to let go of, I hope, is that we often have a sense of gradual progression, gradual development of this practice and wisdom that takes place over a period of time. You know that you start from a place of ignorance and confusion and chaos, and gradually you get better and better and better and better and better until you reach enlightened retirement and go to the Florida of, you know, geriatric yogis, and you don't have to work anymore. You know, you don't have to observe anymore, you don't have to do anything anymore. Well, also, sadly to say, it does not work that way. It just does not work that way. For most people, their practice is peaks and valleys. Peaks and valleys and peaks and valleys. Now, in the beginning of meditation practice, we get very obsessed with the peaks. You know, when we're up there, that's when we feel good. You know, when our attention is right on the button, you know, and our steps are slow and we're very mindful. 
and I, we come in and we have a good sitting, we think, great. You know, and the valleys we want to forget about. You know, those times when our attention feels a bit scatty and it's hard to be at- mindful or anything else for that matter. It's hard even to be present in the room. We like to forget about those valleys and can't wait till we get back up to the next peak. That, I would say, is the beginning of the practice. I feel as the practice develops, we also begin to appreciate that it's in the valleys that we do some of our richest learning. That some of our richest wisdom and richest understanding comes in those valleys and our mind simply doesn't make those divisions anymore between the peaks and the valleys. Meditation begins with attention. It's what it's all about, just being attentive. We help to facilitate that attention by slowing down, by turning our attention to specific objects. The very act of doing that means a major adjustment that many of you have experienced over the last few days. It's an adjustment which is not always easy simply because, of course, as I mentioned earlier, we would very much like to be able to turn our attention inwardly and abide in bliss and joy. And often when we turn our attention inwardly, we do, well, we can't help overlook that there's quite a few habits there and mental states and impulsive reactions and a fair bit of conditioning hanging around, you know, and it's not all a bed of roses. So that very inner exposure, inner acquaintance, means that we come up with the resistances that are traditionally called hindrances, although I don't like to use that word very much. You know, the resistances of the sleepiness and the restlessness and the negativity and the doubt, they come up to block out that inner experience, to camouflage it so that we don't have to deal with it so directly, so that we can manage to stay away from it. Now, in the beginning, too, of practice, when those hindrances come up, and when I speak about the beginning of practice, I hope you realize I don't mean just one's first retreat. (laughs) They come up, they arise, and often our relationship to those hindrances is we get very overwhelmed by them. You know, we have big gaps in our consciousness, big gaps, (coughs) you know, when we're not really sure what hit us or what happened or what went on or anything else, we tend to get swept away by them, overwhelmed, lost to different degrees. It's a difficult stage of the practice, often it's quite disheartening because it feels like we have all the difficulties that can arise and so far none of the goodies. You know, so you, in the beginning, it does feel like, you know, you're really working hard and it just feels at times, you know, like one difficulty after another and yet not so many of the benefits yet revealed. And so it's a time often when there's a fair bit of judgment going on inwardly. You know, the inner judge has a a real ball game with the, the resistances that arise. You know, you can do so much with them. It has so much to work with, so much to judge, so much to measure. So there's often quite a strong presence of the inner judge in relationship to those hindrances, which doesn't help, obviously, but it's a hard one to convince ourselves of. Mm -hmm. This stage of the practice does take a great deal of faith and patience, a great deal of faith and patience. 
faith in the practice, that's part of it, but also faith in ourselves, trust in ourselves, faith in our own capacity, faith in our own sense of possibility, faith in our own potential. That faith and just reminding us ourselves of that time and time again allows us to come back with more gentleness, more acceptance, more openness, instead of the tightness and narrowness of struggle. Often too, in the beginning of practice, and again I'm not talking about numbers of retreats, there's often an excessive concern with how to do it right. Now you would think objectively, you know, that there can't be anything complicated about being with your breath or moving your attention through your body. I mean, it seems objectively very simple. Subjectively, it can be the most complicated thing to engage in. Is my breath the way it's supposed to be? (laughs) I don't think it's deep enough. You know, it seems much too shallow. I wonder if I should check this out. You know, maybe I'm not breathing right. Maybe I'm supposed to be breathing differently. Um, You know, how do I go through my body? And then I go there or here, or what do I do? You know, there's often a concern with the mechanics of the process. It's an important concern. You know, you want to... You know, you don't want to spend a whole retreat and then at the end discover, you know, you've been doing something wacky for ten days, you know. (laughs) But, you know, you have to appreciate the excessiveness of the concern that can arise and how preoccupying it can be. There's often then, of course, you do start to practice and that means things do start to arise, you know, and that is a stage of the practice. You know, you open up a little bit and it's opening the door. You know, and you can't predict what's going to arise. You just can't predict it. You know, you may come into a retreat thinking, you know, you should have a horrible time, and it's wonderful. You may come into a retreat thinking, you should have a wonderful time, and it's horrible. There's this wonderful meditation time, you know, if things come up, which is very descriptive because it feels like that. You know, it feels like you're just sitting there totally innocent, and bang! (laughs) You know, and you wonder, where did that one come from? I didn't know I was carrying that. So there's often a lot of concern that comes about the content of what is arising. You know, the, the stories, the history, um, the particulars, the details, <coughs> and a feeling that, you know, we need to do that. And there's some validity in that. But the relationship we often form is because there tends to be such a lot arising, frequently such a lot arising, we feel we've got to stay on top of it. You know, really stay on top of it, that if we kind of relax for a minute, you know, we're going to get swamped. So there's often some tightness that comes, you know, and feeling of being on guard, you know, what's going to come next. You know, and it's a bit like maybe driving your car backwards on a busy freeway without brakes, you know. (laughs) It's that feeling of, you know, you're just coasting. And of course, then there is often some tension. (laughs) To say the least. A characteristic is, you know, that we often have a very personal relationship with what is arising also. You know, I mean, it's obviously happening within us. It's obviously my story. It's not happening to anybody else. You know, not in the same way, anyway. So we tend to have a very personal relationship. We feel very personally affected and responsible for what is arising. We often feel very responsible for it. Um, 
<coughs> you know, which does lead often to all kinds of guilts and regrets and again more judgments. You know, when the hindrances or frustration comes or when we feel overwhelmed, we feel very down about it all. You know, I lost it again, you know, I blew it again. Um, we feel very up when we manage to stay on top of it. When pain arises, you know, it's, it's no doubt it's my pain. You know, you may have heard ideas that pain is insubstantial and empty and subject to dissolution, but they're hard to believe in. You know, there's really a sense that is most assuredly my knee, most assuredly my ankle, most assuredly my back. You know, it's not anybody else's, no matter how much we might logically subscribe to those ideas. We tend to focus on the negative. We tend to focus on the negative simply because there seems such a lot of it. You know, what else are we going to focus on, you know? <laughs> okay, so the mark, the mark, you know, we've got all this stuff happening. Sometimes it takes us a bit by surprise. Sometimes we're not too surprised. But the mark of our relationship is that we get very much stuck in the role of being the doer. Very much fascinated by the role of being the meditator. And all of this, you know, is quite a natural part of this progression, you know, not to feel that it's, you know, something wrong. We have to go through this, it seems. Mm -hmm. We get entrenched as a doer. You know, our main job is obviously to do. That's what doers do. So we do a lot of trying, often a lot of struggling trying to do it right, trying to make things different, trying to alter how things are, trying to be more attentive and less dull, trying to be more clear and less disconnected, trying to be more calm and less reactive, trying to be more loving and less hostile, and trying to be more open and less defensive. You know, there's a lot of that kind of things aren't quite right, you know, and a conviction, somehow some inner conviction that we can make it right if we do enough. You know, if we try hard enough and if we struggle hard enough, we can make it right. That conviction, of course, is one that reinforces our doing, you know, and, and the very role of the doer. At times it feels a very uphill struggle. You know, you no sooner deal with the dullness, you know, than you breathe one short sigh of relief and you've got the restlessness intruding, you know, and it seems to be often one thing after another, a bit wearing, a bit disheartening, you know, and you wonder, is this ever going to change? Well, <laughs> now, uh, one thing that makes it even worse, <laughs> is all the even worse, is that this is the stage when we often tend to manufacture for ourselves a whole lot of models about what a good meditator is and what a bad meditator is, what a good sitting is and what a bad sitting is. Now, you've probably heard lots and lots of times that there's no such thing as a good sitting and a bad sitting. Well, inwardly, I feel most people believe there actually is. You know, there is actually such a thing as a good sitting, and there is most definitely such a thing as a bad sitting, you know. And we know what a good sitting is. You know, a good sitting is that when you come in and you sit down and your body cooperates and your attention's great and your mind's calm and you're right with it, you know, and you, you feel fresh and peaceful and you think, you know, 
what I really came here for. And you know what a bad sitting is, you know, it's sort of, you know, I don't need to describe it, do I? Everybody knows what a bad sitting is. But obviously those models don't necessarily help us. They can be quite discouraging. They can be quite disheartening again. They're not helpful to us, but they're not necessarily easy ones for us to let go of. Now, the bad news is that this kind of process of adjustment, which is really the adjustment just to being present and conscious, can actually last quite some time. You know, and, and I don't mean just one retreat, but it comes and goes, you know, it comes and goes in relationship to the challenging things we meet, to the difficult things that arise within ourselves, it does come and go. That we do have breakthroughs, you know, times when, it's, when it really ends, but we do need to appreciate that the hindrances, as they're called, do arise in any situation when we're confronted with something that is challenging to us. So, we shouldn't look to a point, you know, when we've got the hindrances nicely packaged up and dealt with and put aside forever, right? And the practice is not to do that. It's really our developing that skillfulness of being with a whole variety of different situations and being skillful and wise with them. The good news is that that stage of adjustment does pass. It really does pass. It really does undergo some dramatic change for our breathing a sigh of relief, you know. And things change, undergo a lot of change. You know, we find that as we continue the practice, just continuing developing our attention, the thoughts may still come, <coughs> the feelings still arise, the sensations still arise, but somehow we find that there's just that little bit less involvement with them. Somehow there's a relationship. Somehow we're not so concerned with fixing them. Somehow we learn that we can just be, actually be present with what we're experiencing. That what we're experiencing doesn't have to be some final measure of our self-worth or identity or anything else. As our power of attention grows, the power of our reactions lessens. And that happens simultaneously. As the power of our attention grows, the power of our reactions lessens, we are simply not overwhelmed, not overpowered, not swept away by whatever arises. We find also that there's less extremes in our practice, you know, less of the highs and the lows, less of the valleys and the peaks, less of the feelings of elation followed by feelings of depression. That there does come into being within ourselves greater sense of balance, of calmness, of tranquility, a sense that it's fine just to be present, that there's actually quite a revelation in how wonderful it can be just to be present with what is. There's an important, um, some important changes that take place in our consciousness at that point. There does come much more sensitivity, real sensitivity. You know, not sensitivity that's just concerned with an object, but an inner sensitivity, an openness and a vulnerability that's matched and grounded in a sense of strength and balance. There does come more of a sense of spaciousness. And 
things that have arisen before that were previously overwhelming, we suddenly find we're able to hold them. That somehow the consciousness has expanded in a way that we can actually accommodate and embrace and hold what is arising in a sensitive and in a spacious way. We're not overwhelmed, we're not overpowered. At that point, too, there does come about um, a spon- much more spontaneous development of mindfulness, you know, the, and much greater ease in just attuning ourselves with the present moment. A very spontaneous development of that. We don't have to try so hard to be mindful, primarily because we are beginning to discover the joy of being mindful. So it's not a struggle. It's not a struggle. And it begins to arise very spontaneously within ourselves. There's some important insights that happen at this point. The major in, one of the major insights that develops is that we don't have to be a victim. Now that is so important. You know, when there's not much spaciousness within ourselves, we are basically in the role of the victim of whatever arises from within ourselves or from outside of ourselves that is strong and powerful. So we find ourselves in that role as the victim, being pushed and molded and conditioned all the time. You know, we're, we're in contact with a thought which is difficult, we're down. We're in contact with a thought which is pleasant, we're up. We're in contact with a person who's confronting. We're fearful. We're in contact with a situation which is challenging. We're defensive. You know, that's being a victim, that sense of no space inwardly. And so just being molded again and again and again to whatever we're exposed to. It's not a role that really leads to much inner trust. It's not a role which really leads to much faith in ourselves. And the insight into not being a victim is profound. It's truly profound because actually if you don't need to be a victim of your own mind, your own thoughts, your own conditioning, your own stories, your own history, if you don't need to be a victim of that, quite honestly there's not a lot else in the world that you're going to be a victim of. As the energy, you know, and that, that lack of struggle, of course, means that we have much more energy available to us, much more uh, attention available to us. And there does become, or come about as a result of that, a real interest in the practice. You know, like, if this can come about, what else? <laughs> you know, so there does come about a real sense of a personal engagement with the practice, a real interest and just exploring the possibilities of it for ourselves. Through the stability that comes and the development of practice, there is a refinement of attention, there is a refinement of our ability to be present, there's a refinement of our own consciousness. We still use techniques, methods perhaps, but not with such intensity of doing it right. There's not a sense of, you know, that there is a right way of doing it. But rather we are able much more to have access to methods and techniques simply as a tool to be more present, to be more conscious. So we're not obsessed with being the yogi or being the meditator. There's 
comes about more of a capacity to let things go. You know, the more spacious you are, the less overwhelmed you are, the greater your ability to be free of things, to let go of things, not through willpower or through suppression or through pushing things away, but to let it let go of things because you're not so prone to defining yourself by them. And because you trust in that inner space, because you trust in that inner spaciousness and balance and stability, there comes an ease in being able to let go. The contents of what arise simply is not so powerful. There's less struggle, less trying, and we begin to experience the benefits of the meditation, the true benefits of the meditation. We begin to have some glimpses of deep inner peace. We begin to have some glimpses of fundamental connectedness. We begin to have some glimpses of wholeness within ourselves. We begin to have some glimpses of a deep serenity, tranquility, openness. We begin to have some glimpses of what the possibilities of sensitivity really are. Those glimpses are inspiring. They are inspiring for us. You know that that freeway disappears. It's more like we're on a country road, you know, and it's really nice to be there. It's really nice to be there. Sometimes it comes as a, as a surprise to us. One of the things that changes is that body pain does, is dramatically reduced. And that's important because the inner tension reduces, the inner struggle reduces. So does body pain as we sit. And sometimes to our great surprise, it's actually a joy to sit. A real joy. You know, it's a real sense of joy in it, that you sit and it is so joyful. And that is quite a revelation for us. So you know that we can be alone, just with ourselves, just with who we are, and have that to be a joyful experience, a joyful way of being, where there's a real sense of wholeness and completeness, and yet there's no separation, we're alone, and yet we feel basically connected and bonded, that is a revelation, and it's a real inspiration for us. There's a sense in that of really settling into the moment, profoundly settling into just being with this moment as it is. As the sensitivity deepens, again, there are more changes in the consciousness, with the lightness and the equanimity that is born and that begins to unfold, there is less impression made on the consciousness by whatever arises. So thoughts and feelings still come, but it's like a breath of wind on a still pond. Instead of previously when that lightness and equanimity was maybe not so present, the thoughts and the memories were more like throwing a rock into the still pond. You know, now it's just like a breath of wind. There's just the slightest sense of being touched. There's a real awareness and a real connection and a real spaciousness around it. But there's not that sense of I am, of being the owner so much of all of that. There's not that sense of our being, being defined and limited by any particular content, any story, any form of conditioning. 
That meditation then does begin to have its own momentum. We're aware of the contents of what arises, but we're also in a very real way aware of the process of what arises. The way, the, by the process, I mean understanding the ways in which we do construct mental states for ourselves, understanding the ways in which we do construct limited images of who we are, understanding the ways in which we do construct definitions and restrictions, and also an understanding that goes beyond the boundaries of those definitions of restrictions. There begins to emerge a much vaster vision of ourselves a much vaster vision of our potential and a much wider vision of who we are as a woman, as a human being, as an individual. We're simply less bound, less bound. And because that spaciousness is there, you know, there's many insights that come, many insights into who we are, many insights into understanding the way we construct things. You know, and at times the insights, well, especially in the beginning, they seem so many, they can often seem very special. You know, and there's often one desire to hold on to them, you know, so we finish a city and we run off and write them down, you know, you know, and there's that one and that one and that one. And, uh, you know, it's because we're not so trusting in our insight yet, not so trusting in our wisdom. We reckon if we don't write it, write it down, we're going to lose it. Mm-hmm. Well, my story, you know, my own story is, could be called a history of losing insights. <laughs> you know, I have lost more insights. You know, then I could count. You know, I lost insights in the Indian mail. You know, I lost insights in, you know, the, the airlines lost my insights one year, <laughs> never to be found again. Karma with losing insights. But anyway, I'd like to assure you that actually you can trust in your insights. They don't disappear. You know, and that sense of specialness does dissipate a bit. And you begin to really appreciate that actually insight is an, it's not a static thing. You know, I've seen something and then saying, I know. You know, I've got it, I know. I'm reaching some conclusion, but rather than an insight is an ever unfolding process. Ever deepening, ever changing. And that there isn't a point, hopefully, that we ever get to when we say, I know. So that it's an ever-emerging, ever-unfolding process, and we just need to keep creating that environment, you know, and that those insights begin, continue to emerge and unfold in ways that we need in that moment. When the consciousness is spacious and light and settled into the moment, um, we begin to appreciate that awareness actually neutralizes conditioning. That's very important. You know, often when we feel to be the owners of our conditioning and our stories, you know, we get into this business of wanting to erase them and get rid of them and change them. We don't ever erase personal histories as such, but we change our relationship to them dramatically. And awareness does, the power of awareness is that it neutralizes the power of conditioning. That's all you need to do. That's all you need to do. You don't have to become someone else. You don't have to become free. You don't have to die to the past or such. Simply that awareness neutralizes conditioning, and it has no power. At that point in the meditation, you may choose. You know, people have come up with different choices. 
when the consciousness really is spacious, actually the sense of possibility really opens. One of the options, of course, is to really develop and refine techniques. Because the different techniques of meditation hold different possibilities. You know, here in a short retreat, you know, we work with the breath for three days. Well, you know, you might get some attention, but working with the breath over a longer period of time, working with development of attention, holds some pretty amazing benefits. And I'm not going to overestimate them because they're not for everyone. In my own practice, it was very useful for me to develop that attention. You know, some of the benefits of, of developing the breath, and not everyone is inclined towards this, is developing deep concentration experiences in which there's cessation experiences, cessation of mind, cessation of body, cessation of world, in which there's profound states of bliss and joy and serenity. You know, and they're pretty attractive. You know, they're well worth looking at, but they're not the be-all and end-all of practice. You know, developing mindfulness and that real moment-to-moment noting and attention and awareness, it has its benefits. It can be very enriching if used wisely. It can be a means to insight. It's not the be-all and end-all of practice. But we may choose to develop technique because we feel we'll benefit from those techniques and that for many of us we do. We may choose not to. We may choose not to. We may feel that our own direction is not so inclined towards exploring particulars or specific areas of meditation practice. We may choose instead really to just to focus on deepening that sense of awareness and openness and depth in consciousness. And with both, there is the possibility of great insight and liberating insight. Deep insight into the nature of change, deep insight into the nature of identification and self, deep insight into the nature of suffering and its cause. And when I talk about deep insight, I'm talking about insight that is so deep that it is liberating. And that is the purpose of insight, is to liberate. It's to liberate us from restricted ways of being. It's to liberate us from distorted ways of seeing. It's to bring us that rich and profound sense of freedom inwardly, of not being defined, not being limited, not being restricted. Whatever way we go, whichever way we choose to go, the momentum of sensitivity is there, and it continues to unfold. That very momentum of the practice offers its own benefits. There will be a deepening and an enriching that takes place. There will also be an opening of the heart on a very deep level. Love, compassion, <coughs> empathy, joy, sensitivity, they come, they're born of an open heart. And that opening of the heart is once more facilitated by the combination of sensitivity and understanding. As we free ourselves inwardly of our own defenses, our own restrictions, we have less to take a stand on. We can open inwardly to ourselves, and that means we can open to the world. And with that openness, we can be touched deeply, move deeply, respond fully. And we find that, you know, uh, the love, the compassion, the sensitivity, we find that they are 
in the very core of our being, the very core of our seeing, that they're not something that we apply or do, but it is our way of seeing. Established in awareness, we come to a place of grace, a place of deep grace, where there is a deep understanding that there is nowhere to go and nothing for us to do and nothing for us to achieve. And that comes out of deep insight. I'm not talking about a conceptual framework of that. But a deep grace, a deep understanding of grace in which there's a true receptivity. And in that receptivity that is born of grace, there is the possibility of being touched by insight into reality, into truth, true liberating insight. May all beings live with sensitivity. May all beings abide in awareness. May all beings deepen in wisdom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.